Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at believing? Welcome to episode 45 of the Lovable Podcast. Have you ever had clarity about what you really want to do with your life, but then you looked around and saw what your life is already filled with and decided there was no room for this other thing or things? So you just went right back to ignoring your calling, your passion, your purpose. This week we are going to get very practical and we are going to become quitters. Specifically, we are going to quit some of the things we've added to our lives before we gain clarity about who we really are, so there will be more room for us to resurrect our truest self. By the end of this episode, you will begin to see more clearly a path toward practicing your passions because you will be planning to clear that path of debris. Before we get rolling today, though, I want to remind you, the comprehensive, lovable study experience is available now. Everything we've been working through in this podcast, all of the written content that I read to you every week that goes along with the year of listening, loving, and living, as well as a new individual and group study guide for lovable, it's all available for free on my website. You can go there right now to get it at drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. Again, that's drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. While you're there, you can sign up for my mailing list at the top of the right sidebar. You'll immediately get a free ebook entitled The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down, and you'll also get a free sample of Lovable. And then each week you'll get one email on Wednesday mornings with a link to helpful content. I am in the middle right now of unsubscribing from all of the junk mail that I get, so I understand um, how valuable the space in your inboxes is. And uh, we're not going to clutter it up with additional stuff you don't need, just the one weekly email. And of course, if you want more than just a sample of Lovable, you can go to lovablethebook.com. That's lovablethebook.com to find out all about it. It's available wherever books are sold in paperback, digital, and audio, so check it out wherever you like to buy books. Someone just told me a story this week that was just uh, so encouraging of someone who was who was writing along, listening to the audio of Lovable, and something struck them so uh, so impactfully that they pulled over, went to the truck, got out their paperback copy of Lovable, and started underlining what had, had impacted them so much. So get it in whatever form or however many forms you want to get it in. Um, all right, I think that's it. Let's get into this week's conversation. Instead of immediately trying to do more of what's you, Let's first begin quitting some of the things that aren't you. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 44 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled The Beauty of Being a Quitter. This week is the beginning of the home stretch in this year of listening, loving, and living. For four months, we listened for the voice of grace within us and remembered our truest, most lovable self. Then for four months, we focused on loving by boldly revealing our true self and finding places of belonging with those who celebrated the announcement of who we actually are. Then, in these first two months of living, we've addressed barrier after barrier to identifying our passions, which are embedded in our true self. 
Now, in these final two months of this year, we're going to get increasingly practical about actually living out the passions you've begun to identify. Today, specifically, we're going to focus on the many ways we cluttered our lives when we lack clarity about who we are and how becoming a quitter of those things can actually make space for the practicing of our passions. Before we do, though, let's check in about your experiences so far in these months of, of living. What passions are you reconnecting with? What resistance are you noticing? What resistance are you overcoming? What resistance are you succumbing to? Um, let's get into to all of that awareness that is beginning to grow within you in these months of living. And of course, if you've practiced last week's exercise, which focused on challenging our ideas that a meaningful life is a dramatically impactful one, and instead encouraged us to consider like much more ordinary, less glamorous forms of living meaningfully, um, if that is something that you were focused on this week, what were your reactions to that exercise? How has that affected you? So while you are thinking about what you want to share in that regard, um, I'll share with you an experience that I had this week that I think was directly influenced by the, the exercise that we discussed last week and, um, and my thinking in that regard. So I was having a conversation with somebody um, who is sort of, sort of caught up in, in this very common idea that, um, that our, what we do with our lives, that our lives are only meaningful if we've had some sort of extraordinary impact, of, you know, whether gained power, had influence, had an impact. Um, and, uh, and so started to engage in this conversation of let's, like, let's, yeah, let's really put our definitions of a meaningful life out there and see if we can sort of settle on a definition that feels healthy and sustainable and tenable. And, uh, and the definition that I, I heard coming out of my mouth, <laughs> for what it's worth, um, a definition that I think arises from last week's exercise is a meaningful life is any life that on the whole, in total, reduces the overall collective level of misery on the planet. <laughs> Let me say that again. A meaningful life is any life that on the whole, in total, reduces the overall collective level of misery on the planet. Because if you've read Lovable, you know one of the ideas in Lovable is um, no one person can change uh, the world with their passion. The question is, if everybody practiced their very ordinary passion, would the world change? Um, and, and, and so this idea that lowering the collective level of misery on the planet, it's an utterly ordinary idea, but if every ordinary person abided by that idea and lived according to that principle, would, how quickly would the world change? I imagine very quickly. So I'm curious, based upon your reactions to last week's exercise or any other thoughts you're having about living a meaningful life um, and living out your passions, um, in addition to everything else, what better definitions would you offer than success or impact for living a meaningful life? Michelle writes, lowering the collective misery. Love that. Yeah, it's a, I feel like a definition of a meaningful life. Um, if, we had, if, we if we have to come up with a definition of a meaningful life, it ought to have easily practical application, right? So if I go through my day-to-day -day and I see multiple paths in front of me at any given moment, um, the question for me can be, um, which path lowers the collective level of misery on the planet? Um, or how can I walk the path I'm on in a way that lowers the collective level of misery on the planet? And I think what you'll start to see, if you just let that be sort of your guiding uh, definition, you'll start to see that you begin to have greater clar clarity about the very ordinary passions you have, which can include things you do, paths you walk, or ways you do things, ways you walk paths. Um, so in other words, <clears throat> I could write in a way, um, it's a passion of mine, you know, writing is a path I walk. Um, 
I could write in a way that increases the collective level of misery on the planet, or I could write in a way that reduces it. So if at the end of the day, I've written in a way that reduces the collective level of misery on the planet, that was a meaningful day. I can live with that. And I've got greater clarity, probably at the end of it, in terms of what I wrote about, what I decided to focus on, greater clarity about where my passions are. Alex writes, shedding fear and ego allow love in. Choices made in love are never wrong. You know what's so um, intuitive about that reaction, Alex, to this conversation about um, lowering the collective level of misery is that once we, we identified that definition in the conversation, the conversation immediately turned to issues of ego. Because um, generally, um, the ego adds to the collective level of misery on the planet in several ways. First, one of the, the roles of the ego is to hide us away and protect us, um, which adds to the already normal level of loneliness that we experience as people. So um, the ego creates more loneliness. Um, the ego also is really good at attacking others, sort of going on the attack is the best defense, is the best way to protect ourselves. So injuring, hurting, attacking others adds to the collective level of misery on the planet. And then the ego also is sort of responsible in this, in this castle metaphor we've talked about in Lovable and in this podcast, it's responsible for elevating us in arrogant ways, making us think that we're above others. So here, I've finally proved I'm good enough because I'm above you. Um, and so in doing so, we have to keep others down. We have to suppress their true self. We have to be shameful and critical of their true self in order for us to stay elevated. So the ego is continuously adding to the collective level of misery on the planet. The ego goes away, the ego dissolves, or in the metaphor of the castle, we let down the drawbridge and we walk out of the ego and we live from our soul, we live from our heart, we live from that place that is love within us, and automatically we begin to see the collective level of misery on the planet go down. Number one, because we're less miserable, <laughs> we're less alone, we're less angry, we're less aggressive, we're less violent, we're less arrogant, um, but also because the way that love begins to impact the world in very subtle, ordinary ways, reduces the level of misery around us. So Alex, I couldn't, couldn't agree more with that observation that in the end, living an ordinary life um, begins to boil down to, um, living a meaningful ordinary life begins to boil down to how much am I living from my ego and how much am I living from my soul. Michelle writes, my mother-in-law was a microbiologist to work to find a cure for AIDS. My mother raised two girls and was a Girl Scout treasurer she didn't want to die because she wanted to measure up to her rival. Mom didn't have any patents, never traveled outside the U.S., never taught a class, but she helps to lower the collective misery of the planet by raising girls who love people. I wish I could have conveyed that to her, but she didn't believe that that was enough. Oh, Michelle, thank you um, for that well, that vulnerability um, and for how, how, how much we all need to hear several things in there. One is, as you articulate that for us, I think right now there's a lot of people going, oh yeah, I get it. I get, I get that that's what I do to myself. I compare myself to somebody else who had sort of a more dramatic, more public way of impacting the world, and I shame myself for not doing enough. Um, but what your mother did was beautiful in a very ordinary way, and meaningful in a very ordinary way. So it gives us permission to quit shaming ourselves and embrace some of the ordinary things that we do. I mentioned just last week in the podcast, probably one of the more meaningful things I do every week is coach a very, a, not a, ver a very sort of not good youth soccer team. Um, and last week, one of the kids said, I think that's the first time I ever haven't felt bad about losing. Um, 
and the collective level of misery dropped a little bit on the planet. Um, and so that's meaningful. Um, it's not going to make any <laughs> make any headlines. Um, and then the other thing I think what, that you're getting at there that is so important is that we cannot, no matter how hard we try, we are not responsible for dismantling someone else's shame. No matter how much you love your mom, no matter how much you want her to embrace that her life was meaningful and valuable, that we are utterly powerless to dismantle someone else's shame. Yeah, we can, uh, we can give them opportunities. We can see them with grace. We can see their true self and their worthiness even when they can't, but ultimately it's up to them to finally choose whether or not they begin to see that as well. Um, and that's a painful thing to feel that limitation um, amongst the people that we love. Um, but ironically, if we don't accept our limitations in that way, I can't make you see how worthy you are. Um, we actually begin to add to the collective level of misery on the planet by trying to control people, force people, get frustrated with people, and so on and so forth, versus accepting that that beginning to to dissolve their shame is their part of their story and part of their process and that we're going to embrace them in the midst of that anyways um, which begins to level the lower the level of collective misery so thanks for those i think really two important things we all need to hear deb f writes lowering the collective misery good one if we all tend to our own gardens take care of our needs and passions perhaps we will be more willing to share a smile each day rather than be stuck in the mire of being miserable you know what Deb, F., and you just drew upon a metaphor from Lovable, in which we talk about, how, hey, if gardening is your passion, it's very ordinary. It's hard to see how it necessarily impacts the world. And I mean, you're not necessarily giving, it's not a big enough garden to give your, you know, give your, all your vegetables away to the local food pantry. But um, let's be clear about something. When we practice our passions, we are allowing our true self to be lived out. We are not engaging in the miserable process of, of pushing that that true self down. We are experiencing the joy and freedom of living out of our true self, and we are much more likely to walk out into the world with a smile on our face. <laughs> um, but these days, honestly, my wife, if you know, if I seem to be inexplicably grumpy, one of the first questions she asks is, when was the last time you wrote an original piece? <laughs> and I'll go, oh, God, I'm so busy with everything else I'm doing, it's been two weeks. She's like, go, go write. Because we, we need you to be joyful. <laughs> that passion needs to be lived out. And, uh, and sure enough, I go right, come back, um, and the world looks a little bit different. Same for her with her running. She has a passion for running um, and, and, and a passion for her friends and running with her friends. And if she's starting to feel a little wonky to me, I go, when was the last time you got out with your friends on a, for a morning run? And sure enough, she does. And, and the collective level of misery in the home decreases. So yes, just the practicing of our passions and the joy it brings us that then overflows to other people um, can be a very meaningful way to live a life. Michelle writes, another gardening metaphor regarding trying to influence other people or turn them around, quote, that's not my weed to pick, or you might prefer a quote, that's not my rose to pluck. Yes, someone else's shame is not your weed to pick, right? Weed, weed your garden, weed your flower bed. Um, and as you do so, you will begin to develop more compassion for other people who both are going through the process of weeding the flower bed and how complicated it can be or, uh, and sort of ongoing, or, um, you might even have more compassion for those, uh, those people around you who are just refusing to do it or saying, Nope, I'm not touching my shame, bearing it, living from my ego. You might look at them and go, I get it. I know. I know how painful it was to face all of that. I, 
I, I get the decision you're making. I wish you'd make a different one, but I understand it. Carrie Lynn writes, My son is a senior in high school. His junior year, a black cloud of despair and failure seems to have overshadowed him. His entire junior year, he was an honor student. Carrie Lynn, I don't see any more, and it's that's, that's as far as it goes. Uh, I'm going to respond to that, um, and then if there's more that you want to add, please feel free. Carrie Lynn, I want you to know, I mean, I, I, again, last week, uh, just eight days ago, I was in Naperville talking to a group of parents and educators, and this is not an unusual experience at all for juniors in high school, early seniors in high school. Um, it's increasingly normative. Um, there is, uh, um, and there's all sorts of complicated factors that go into it. Um, I want you to know that you're not alone. Um, but but kids more than ever are faced are, are sort of faced with this leap into a new level of independence, um, and they are more likely than ever to slip into a sense of depression and despair and uncertainty um, and anxiety about that leap. Um, and uh, and and there's a, there's important like there's important things um, that are, are packed into that that need to be talked about and discussed. So some of the books that um, that we were discussing at that at that meeting with parents and educators were a book called *The Price of Privilege*, um, a book called *The Gift of Failure*, um, and if there's any others that came to mind. Um, but these are these are a couple of resources that can sort of help people begin to maybe understand what's going on in that depression. Then, of course, there's could be a, a bunch of other things we don't know about and that you don't know about. Um, and so, what we always recommend. Now, this is a great time to get a kid into counseling and to talk to somebody he knows is objective and, you know, isn't going to take sides and uh, it could be a great chance for him to get to, to start to dig into whatever is contributing to that in him. So um, encourage it. That, that counselor will also uh, give you recommendations about whether or not at this time medication could be helpful um, for him to get him over the hump and into a healing process. Um, so that's my, uh, I guess that's my reaction to that. I'm sorry to hear about it, but the fact that you mentioned it, there's going to be a bunch of people listening to this who are going through the exact same thing, and they need to hear that they're not alone in it, um, and that as a culture, we're starting to try to figure out how to address it. Carrie Lynn adds, uh, through working with an awesome therapist, he quit his huge plans for his future, scaled back his career goals that were crushing him, and emerged this year as confident, engaged, and happy. Oh my goodness, you did... Carrie Lynn, I got ahead of you in your comment, and you did exactly <laughs> what I was encouraging. That is so awesome. Um, and you're getting at one of the pieces of, um, of what those books I recommended are getting into and what Lovable gets into, which is that more and more these days, our young people feel like they need to immediately um, sort of... Uh, have a better life than their parents. They need to make a bigger impact. They need to, the pressure that they feel um, to live an extraordinary life right out of the gates from high school and into college and into a career, it can, it can be crushing. Um, so to go through a therapeutic process like that, um, where they're getting reconnected with who they are and letting their true self guide them rather than a world that wants them to try a bunch of different things um, is, is a beautiful thing. Um, we work with kids, you know, these young people in this transitional moment in their lives at, at Artisan Clinical Associates in Naperville. We work with them every day. It's so cool, so cool to see them be able to get reconnected with their true self at 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 25, and not wait till they're 50 and have so much more to undo and to quit. Um, it's such a, such a good point of life to get things squared away. So um, thanks for taking care of your kids by getting them that kind of help.
Stephanie writes, I facilitated a vision workshop recently in my, in my center vision. How I desire to live my life is filtered through this mantra. How will this choice, passion, desire, honor God, bless others, and provide personal satisfaction? Hopefully all three are in alignment, but at least two need to get a check mark. It has helped with boundaries. Uh, Stephanie, that is a beautiful segue <laughs> into this week's reading. So um, from there, with that, with that comment, I'm just going to get right into this week's reading because in many ways, this week's reading is about providing you a filter that helps you begin to sort out um, what activities do I keep in my life, which activities and things do I begin to, to delete from my life, um, and how do I get clarity about what those boundaries are. Thanks uh, again, everybody, for this, um, for your vulnerability, um, you know, your, your willingness to share your process um, and give us all a window into that. Um, so beautiful. Thank you for that. Um, we're going to transition now into this home stretch that I mentioned earlier in the episode. Um, we're going to transition from identifying our passions to actually practicing them, like really focus on that. There's some context from Lovable um, from this week's, uh, around this week's reading that I think would be good to read, um, but I'm actually going to read it after this week's reading, um, and, and I think it will go ahead and clarify and deepen this week's reading by reading it afterwards. So um, we're going to get right into this week's reading from the Year of Listening, Loving, and Living, uh, which is week 44, The Beauty of Being a Quitter. My wife and I had reached a pinnacle. We just had our third and last child. My wife, God willing, our last child. <laughs> I just didn't want to feel the intense need to knock on some wood there. We just had our third and last child. My wife had become the director of her graduate psychology program. My clinical practice was thriving, and we just purchased a house in the right neighborhood with the best schools. We had arrived. Before long, though, we realized the place we'd arrived was like a hamster wheel with a motor that couldn't be turned off. We had a mountain of debt, mountains of responsibility, and mountains of stress. We had worked tirelessly for two decades to get to the top, and upon arriving, we were greeted with this disappointing news. There is no top. Slowly it dawned upon us, you don't find peace by reaching the peak of all good things. You find peace by getting a peak at the good thing you've always been. You don't reach happiness by climbing. You settle into happiness by settling into who you truly are. We wanted to make changes, but there was no room for change to happen. We sensed a different life around the corner, but our corner was too cluttered to catch a glimpse of it. Sometimes life gets too cramped to move in any new direction. Sometimes the direction we need to go is backward. Sometimes the best thing we could do is to undo the best things we've done. Around the time my wife and I were wondering how to exit from the road upon which we'd been racing, I heard Bob Goff speak at a small conference in Chicago. By the way, Bob Goff's book, Love Does, if you haven't read it, go pick it up. It's gorgeous. It's very much in line with what we're talking about today. I remember it was jump out of your seat inspiring, but I can't recall any specifics except one. He said, if you want new things to come into your life, you have to cut out old things. It was a Thursday, and he said he quit something every Thursday. On the way to the conference, he called the board of directors upon which he served and told them he was quitting. When they asked why, he told them, it's Thursday. For my wife and I, Thursday had arrived. It was time to become quitters. Of course, few of us have Bob Goff's freedom to make such sudden and radical changes to our lives. We certainly didn't. So our Thursday lasted six years. It was a series of slow, small, and subtle changes that amounted to a little bit of breathing room. We changed our lifestyle and paid down debt as quickly as we could. We watched for the steady drip-drip of activities that were draining our time and resources. We canceled our cable subscription. 
I stopped obsessing about the news and quit arguing about politics. I have no problems with news and politics, but they were leaving me with no room to turn around. The same was true of our many obligations and commitments. So I identified my five roles, husband, father, friend, therapist, and writer. And I said no to anything that didn't fit into those five roles. My wife eventually stepped down from her administrative position. I eventually reduced my caseload by 15%. We made space. While making space in our lives, we often don't know what we're making space for. We just know we're going back to the fork in the road. And years later, when we finally get there, we find a pleasant surprise waiting for us at the fork. We find ourselves. And then we have the space to realize we knew what we wanted all along. We find the room to settle into who we are and the freedom to shape our lives according to who we are. In the words of a friend, we can finally live the way we're wired. Is your clock ticking toward Thursday? Are you ready to make space? Are you ready to quit something so you can start something? Are you ready to start being you? So that is uh, this week's reading from the Year of Listening, Loving, and Living. Now I want to go back to lovable. And in a way, I guess it sort of gives you some additional um, understanding of how that that quitting played out for my wife and I. This is from chapter 25, um, Why Backward is the New Forward. Um, It starts on page 189. I'm going to read you the epigraph and then two excerpts from the chapter. Uh, Here's the epigraph. We all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turning, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you are on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive man. C.S. Lewis. If you were walking to the grocery store and halfway there you heard the store was closed, would you continue to walk the rest of the way? Absolutely not, right? You turn around and go home or go searching for another grocery store. The distance already traveled would be a sunk cost, an investment of time you have to write off in order to start over and get where you want to go. When walking to the grocery store, we have no trouble accepting a sunk cost. In fact, we know it would be silly to keep walking. But when it comes to our passions, it's a different story. If, for instance, like Dante in Tennis Shoes, this is a a person that I talked about earlier in the the chapter and earlier in the book. If, for instance, like Dante in Tennis Shoes, we have completed two years of college in a major we no longer enjoy, we might just continue with the degree because we've already invested so much time in it. We might drink a lot to silence the voice inside urging us to turn around because it knows the store is closed. Then, we just might let momentum carry us down the road we no longer want to travel until two years down that road we wind up feeling less alive than ever before. Now, imagine going down that road for 20 years and spending thousands of dollars and countless hours and all of your blood, sweat, and tears on developing a marketable skill or a career or a lifestyle you're supposed to want. Then one day, as you're hurtling right down the middle of that road, the voice of grace breaks in and the little one inside of you speaks up and you realize that for far too long, you've been living someone else's life and someone else's dream. Where do you find breaks strong enough to break that kind of momentum? After Dante and Tennis Shoes left my office that day, I decided part of my job as a therapist was to become the breaks, to discern when momentum was carrying someone down a road they didn't want to travel, to help them write off the sunk costs, to walk with them while they turn around and go back to the fork in the road where they diverge from the path of their passion, even if that meant helping someone drop out of college. And personally, I decided to press the brakes on my own life. So I'm going to skip ahead now to page uh, 194 and, uh, and conclude this chapter, and then we will uh, we'll dig into all of this. So we turned our lives upside down, and I learned two more lessons about sunk costs. First, after my wife resigned from her professorship and started her new job at an upstart pediatric development center, it became clear. Sunk costs are often not a total loss. 
It turns out the self-awareness and professional skills she developed as the director of a psychology program are also essential for running a rural health center. She never could have done the present thing without first having done the previous thing. She could not have walked the path of her true passion without first having walked the path that preceded it. In other words, the time we spend beyond the fork in the road before we put on the brakes is not just confusion, it's education and training. It prepares us for what lies ahead, or rather, behind us at the fork in the road. Second, when I went back to the fork in my road, I discovered being a therapist wasn't a distraction from my passion. It was a part of my passion. I love my clients. They're my people too, and I'm not leaving them. My path as a psychologist isn't the wrong road. It's a parallel road. Running right next to it all along was a second road. Back at the fork, I could finally see my passion for being a therapist and a writer. Sometimes the grocery store isn't actually closed, it's just lacking something we need, and we may have to go to more than one store if we're going to find everything on our list. So I started my own practice while reducing my clinical hours by a third. Now, instead of focusing on the quantity of my therapeutic work, I focus on the quality of it, and with the extra time in my life, I travel the road of my parallel passion. I go back to the fork in the road, and I write. Please know I'm not suggesting you have to turn your world upside down. My wife and I did something sort of radical. In a way, I still can't believe we did it, and I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. Our story is not your story. Our path is not your path. Don't ask what big changes you need to make. That's probably your shame talking. Once again, telling you that you must go big or go home. Instead, return to the stillness and the silence in which you discovered your, rediscovered your worthiness. You might ask, how do I get nearer to the place I want to be? Does backward need to be my new forward for a while? Who will be my breaks? And what will I do, finally, when I find my true self back at the fork in the road? So that is, uh, that's sort of the full reading for this week. And, um, and as you're thinking about your reactions to it and what you want to say, I mean, I do think it's important for me to share a caveat here. Um, the reason this, this particular practice is happening almost at the end of the year of listening, loving, and living is that if it doesn't happen at the end, if we try to put it at the beginning, you see people begin to do all sorts of things um, that are more impulsive, less thoughtful, less grounded in their true self, less, less grounded in a sense of wisdom and in a sense of dialogue with their community. Um, you know, you see them start to do things like, well, I'll, I'll quit, I'll quit this relationship or, um, I'll quit being a parent <laughs> or I'll quit, um, this job, which my whole family depends upon. Um, and who cares if there's a plan? Um, who cares if I have any way to put food on the table? And this is not about impulsively quitting, um, our commitments, our attachments, our relationships. Um, it's about this whole process of discernment and thought that have brought you to this place and going, there are half a dozen, a dozen things in my life that I'm beginning to get clarity are not a part of my story that I have sort of taken on, um, in my confusion and I want to begin to eliminate. Some of them will be easy to eliminate. Others are going to be more complicated. Some things that I want to eliminate, I can't actually eliminate right away. Um, and so um, beginning to enter into that process of discernment about what you're going to quit. Micheline writes, the peak of the top versus a peak into living. Beautiful. Um, if there's a spirit um, of lovable, it's this idea that getting to the top never delivers on, on what we we think it's going to deliver on. And instead, we're best, we're best off spending time settling into ourselves and getting a peek into ourselves and discovering um, that what we had been searching for at the top was within us all along. Um, and so that's the, that's the reversal and the, uh, the upside down sort of movement there that we, 
we're talking about. Michelin goes on to say, it prepares us for what lies behind us at the fork in the road. I love this and it will become a brilliant one-liner when the little voice calls me backward uh, to move me forward. I'm so glad that that resonates, Michelin. Um, yeah, that when I first read that C.S. Lewis quote many, many years ago, it, it captivated me. There's such wisdom in that, that, oh, I went the wrong way, so I should just go faster in this direction <laughs> versus no, progress is is going backwards, is letting go of, is undoing oftentimes. Um, uh, one of the phrases that I often use in speaking is um, that life is not about becoming who you are, it's about unbecoming who you are not, right? It's about shedding all of these things that we sort of collected like barnacles along the way <laughs> um, and beginning to shed those so we can, can get greater clarity and space to practice the passions that represent who we are. So I'm so glad it's resonating Michelin. Stephanie writes, I find everyone these days is crazy busy, like it's the natural response to how are you. I came to the realization that I say this too. Why? I decided that if I was crazy busy, it was because I didn't have clear priorities and someone else was owning my calendar. Now, if my schedule is full, it's because I choose it to be, and each thing on my schedule has a decided purpose. I like how you decided your five roles, Kelly. For me, it's in order of priority. God, my husband, kids, work friend slash leisure and ministry. So there's so, oh my goodness, Stephanie, there's so much there. Um, one of the things, so there are a lot of things that we in our culture use as a proxy for worthiness, right? Um, monetary, so affluence is a proxy for worthiness. Well, look at the house I live in. I must be doing something right. I must be worthy. Um, I got the new iPhone on the day it came out. Now there's some people who get that because they just geek out on tech, but there's a lot of people who get that because it's a status symbol these days, particularly with what Apple's recently done with their iPhone line. One of the, the, the more increasingly normative proxies for worthiness is how busy we are. Um, how, so what's going on? Oh, things are just so busy, which is a way of saying, I've got so much going on. I'm doing so much. And what I do is the quantity of what I do represents my worth. So if I'm crazy busy, I'm worth more. Um, and it's it's a false belief. It's arising out of our sense of shame, um, but it is a huge temptation in our culture. And I am one of the the worst. Uh, I'm one of I'm one of those who who says that probably more often than not. To the point where, uh, when I go back to my oldest who was in kindergarten, which is almost nine years ago, um, and I walked in the door one day after work, and he was there after kindergarten, and I said, "Hey, bud, how was school today?" And he said, "Good. I got a lot done." It was like, oh my gosh, you have learned from me that the measure of a day, the measure of yourself is how much you get done. We need to turn the tables on this. And that was right around the time my wife and I were confronting that, that tendency of ours to just keep adding to life. Um, so yes, this idea that I'm crazy busy and that I'm, I'm worthy because of it is, is an awfully tempting direction to go. Um, and I love what you are saying about your roles. Um, this idea actually arose, I was at a conference um, that was led by Donald Miller as an author and now um, sort of a branding coach, uh, executive. And uh, his guidelines were, um, you're never ideally you have four roles in life. So you might have to cut out an entire role. Um, and, uh, and I did. Um, I, I had to cut out a role in my life. Um, which led to the elimination of a bunch of activities. Um, and the, the role that I actually cut out in my life essentially was church leader. Um, all of the different ways I was contributing at my, at my church, I needed to cut those out. It was, it was, it was a role 
um, that was not reflective of where my passions were. I was teaching three-year-olds in Sunday school when somebody else should have totally been teaching three-year-olds in Sunday school, right? Um, and, uh, and so I had to narrow it down to five roles. Um, so that's one thing I'd recommend. I think it's a valuable practice. Let's try to get it down to five roles and make tough decisions about which roles we want to begin to, to reduce in our life and the activities that go along with that. Um, so appreciate you sharing that and, uh, and sort of prompting that additional observation. Heather writes, a couple of years ago, Elizabeth Gilbert wrote a piece about, quote, not this. This week follows along with this week. This is about listening to your heart and undoing the things that don't belong. I've been doing a whole bunch of not this lately. Heather, you've been courageous enough to share um, how much um, quitting that you've been facing, um, quitting that feels in some ways forced upon you, um, quitting that you've chosen to engage in yourself. It requires a tremendous amount of courage, doesn't it? Um, and so thanks for, thanks for sort of, uh, I, I usually feel like when I'm, when I'm resonating with Elizabeth Gilbert, I must be on the right path. <laughs> I have an awful lot of respect for her way of thinking and, and seeing the world. So um, thank you for affirming that. And for those who are listening, Not This by Elizabeth Gilbert is a good piece to, to, to sort of add maybe to this week's thinking and reading and practice. Alex writes, too much going on in my mind to text. I am at that crossroad now, and this couldn't be more relevant to me right now. Such a difficult journey, but love and light are on the other side of it all. I am enough. Alex, thanks for just sort of naming. I mean, the, the temptation is to want to know where it all ends up, where it all leads. And I, I alluded to this in the reading, that when you go back to about 2009, 2010 for my wife and I, when we really started to kind of embrace our Thursday and start to, to move into this process of discernment and quitting things, we had no idea where it was going to end up. We didn't know that she was going to resign her professorship. We didn't know that I was going to quit the practice that I was in um, and shift more of my time. I wasn't even writing at the point. I didn't know I was a writer. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there's a, an awful lot of uncertainty and a lot to digest, but it's important for people to know that you don't need to interpret that uncertainty as going down the wrong path. Oftentimes that's exactly what comes with quitting. Marie writes, through a difficult family circumstance with domino effects, all the peaks that I was chasing were forcibly removed from my life. Maybe I wouldn't have chosen to quit if I weren't forced to, I suppose. The space is actually quite uncomfortable and I don't love it, but I see the small benefits at least, like being able to enjoy simple things. Marie, um, one of my, what I consider my spiritual mentors, one of the formative people, writers in my life is Richard Rohr. And he, he has a great book called uh, Falling Upward, Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life. And his, the whole premise of that book, which is so um, influential in my life, was that we spend the first half of life chasing the, the top, chasing the peaks, and that some sort, usually some sort of necessary suffering, loss, um, limitations, uh, barriers, uh, get in our way to, to that. And we enter into this necessary suffering that causes us to step back and question the whole chase that we've been on. And in that moment, begin a different journey. Instead of the outward journey to succeed in sort of the world's eyes, we begin an inward journey to get reconnected with our true self and live our lives from that. So Maria, your experience of it sort of happening to you is actually pretty normative. Um, you know, that, that the suffering in a way sort of visited you and now you're responding to it. That's, um, that's sort of the pattern of life in a way. 
Okay, so this whole week is about getting practical and now it's the practice. So the week 44 practice, let's get really, really practical. Guess what you're gonna do on Thursday this week. But first, identify the five roles in your life that are most valuable to you. We talked about this already. Try to limit it to five and don't fudge. <laughs> For instance, mine are husband, father, friend, psychologist, and writer. Then identify any of your regular activities that, you, that do not contribute to you living those five roles in a valued way. List them. Similarly, identify everything you do in your life that is left over from a time when you had more difficulty recognizing who you are and didn't trust your own worthiness. Once again, list them. Then decide which activity, or if you're feeling ambitious, but this doesn't need to be an ambitious activity, uh, more than one activity, Decide which activity you are going to quit this Thursday. You do not need to prepare a defense of your decision. If someone challenges you, simply say, I'm a little closer to understanding who I am, and I'm making space in my life to live that. They might be angry at first, perhaps even outwardly critical. On the inside, they may be envious of your clarity. If they are openly encouraging and even joyful about your decision, they are, in all likelihood, one of your people. If that happens, buy them a cup of coffee, trade stories, stumble across a little more belonging. Finally, though this is a weekly practice, you can challenge yourself by continuing to cut out one activity every Thursday for the rest of the year. Also, you can use it as a helpful filter for deciding which activities you will add to your life and which you will say no to. For instance, I was recently asked to run for the local school board. This was when I wrote this a couple years ago. In the past, I would have been torn about whether or not to do so. Now I know who I am, I know my five roles, and I quickly declined the offer. I told them I'd be happy to write copy for the school board instead. So that is this week's practice. Um, and um, I guess a natural question for you would be, um, are there specific roles that are coming to mind for you? Um, that you'd say those are central roles to my life and roles that I want to, to sort of um, diminish? Um, and are there particular activities or practices that sort of um, immediately jump out at you as activities that you'd want to hold on to or activities you'd want to, to begin to, to quit in your life? Um, Stephanie writes, laugh out loud, so much to undo at 50. Um, hello. Uh, <laughs> for those of us who are really open to sort of being challenged in this, it could feel a little bit flooding and overwhelming. Like, oh my gosh, there's so much to quit. This, remember... Thursday can last six years. Thursday can last six months. Thursday can last, you know, however long you need it to. But to be sure that you're steadily moving in the direction of eliminating things from your life and, and incorporating things that are a representation of who you are. That's that's the goal. Is the is the it's the direction, it's not the speed. So let's let's keep that in mind because it could get overwhelming. Deb F writes, I worked a civil service job for 30 years that I could barely tolerate. Being a single mom, I felt I had no choice. It was only through retirement that I realized that I had a chance to actually live life for the first time, for me. I've done some major weeding in my own life and habits in order to create the life that I want and treasure every day. It's never too late to go back to the fork in the road. I often get asked to come in to talk to groups about this idea of passion and purpose. And one of the great fears in asking me to come in from event coordinators is, but we have this very diverse group age-wise. You know, we will have, for instance, we'll have women who are just had their first child and women who have been retired for 20 years. And how are you going to talk about this process if that in a way that will apply to everyone? And I think you just sort of named that, that it is never too late to go back to the fork in the road and uh, and sort of get reconnected with yourself and the 
the passions that are drifting up from that holy place within you. Um, it is a problem if we conceive of passion or passions as things that must be careers, right? Because then if I'm 60, 70, 80, it's hard to imagine um, uh, restarting a career at that point. But we've, we've tried to undo that notion completely here. And you've just affirmed that, that passion is not about a career. Um, passion is about a way of living from your true self, uh, resurrecting your true self and, and acting it out in the world. Um, and that there's, it's never too late to start that. That's really good news. Thank you for reminding us of that, Deb. Julie writes, how about finding time to figure out what needs to be eliminated? Yeah. I mean, you, right. It's like a catch 22, right, Julie? Well, I need time to discern what needs to be eliminated, but to get that time, I need to eliminate something. Um, and, and if that's what, it, if, that, if that's what, this week is about for you, Julie, and probably for a lot of people out there who say, I'm crazy busy. It's not, I'm not lying about that. It's the truth. Um, how am I ever going to find space um, to discern that? Yeah, I go back to, in a way, this, this, this exercise is hearkening back to those early months of listening where we focused on carving out space um, to be quiet, to be silent, to be still, to listen for the voice of grace within us. What I would, what I would suggest is at least 15 minutes a day of space to, to listen and discern. Um, ideally, maybe in a, a, an additional hour period at some point in the week. Um, that That's what I'd suggest. Um, the other thing I'd suggest is, um, you know, if, if part of, of what's keeping you busy is your people, you know, friendships that you have, people you're meeting, for instance, sometimes for a coffee or something like that, ask if you can make the conversation about your passions and things that uh, in your life that you've sort of subtly known for a long time you didn't want it to continue with but have sort of felt pressured to continue with, um, invite them to share examples from their life, like make that part of your belonging at this point. Um, so sort of you get to sort of double up on, on practicing and pursuing your passions and, and cultivating your belonging. Michelle writes, I am thinking a lot these days about relief versus mercy. People want God to be merciful, but they really want relief from circumstances. Sometimes those are actually agents of mercy, but this requires a shift in thinking. Um, and I think what you're getting at, uh, Michelle, is that the discernment process needs to be really thoughtful and intentional. Um, we can't just be saying, well, that that activity stresses me out. That activity um, feels like suffering. Um, so I need to eliminate that activity from my life. It's not about eliminating uh, things that are difficult and hard and uh, challenging and surrounding ourselves with activities and commitments that are all pleasurable and enjoyable because sometimes those toughest activities are those that are shaping us the most I think is what you're getting at and and yeah so let's be clear about that it's not about getting rid of stuff that is unpleasant it's about getting rid of stuff that is on us you know, and there are a lot of activities that my true self wants to engage in that aren't easy, that aren't hard, that cause me to face suffering. We want to keep those activities. So thanks for that um, reflection. Heather writes, almost 49 and I'm doing just about everything right now and most times scared out of my mind. Every day I wake up and keep plugging away. Um, Heather, I feel like you're echoing, um, again, sort of Michelle's comment that uh, this isn't about this isn't about immediately having more fun, more pleasure, more enjoyment in life, that the process itself is scary, that some of the things we keep in our lives won't necessarily always feel great. Um, but we're doing the hard work because it's worth it, because it's only through hard work that we, and not doing more work and not more arduous work, but, but emotionally 
um, gritty work is what I mean by hard work. Only by doing the emotionally gritty work do we get to return to our true self. And that is where we begin to experience the joy and the relief. Stephanie writes, what's coming up for me are some things I want to let go of or quit, but the voice I hear is the expectations of others feeling disappointed that it's their important thing that I'll be saying no to. Yeah, that I, when you look back at that practice that I just read out loud, Stephanie, you'll see that a significant portion of the practice is addressing what it will feel like and how others might react to you. Um, more often than not, what we discover is the reason that we're doing something that is not a true reflection of who we are is that it, it's because someone else wants us to do it and we don't want to disappoint them. Um, that it's a reflection of their true self. And, and the way that I think about this, the, 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 the person, the helper in me, the sort of the peacemaker who doesn't like disappoint, <laughs> disappointing people, the way that, that I sort of think about it that helps to get me through that stage is, for instance, when I go back again to the Sunday school idea, I'm teaching three-year-olds in Sunday school. It's not my passion. Um, it's not my skill set. It means I'm not doing it well. Um, it means they're not experiencing the delight um, in them that someone else might. And so I'm taking up the I'm taking up the role of someone who is meant to be here, someone whose passion could get lived out, whose true self could get practiced in this in this space. And so I need to vacate those spaces so they can be filled by people who are passionate about it. So that helps me a little bit when someone's frustrated uh, with my quitting to say, this is, uh, this is not, I'm, I'm, I'm not doing this the way that someone who is passionate about it would be. All right, everyone, thanks again um, for another beautiful discussion. Um, I feel like this is a, a big discussion that I've had to sort of conclude earlier than it, it wants to be concluded, but thank you for, um, for, for everything you've added. Next week, we're going to get even more practical. We're going to talk about how boring things like discipline and structure actually produce the most exciting and passionate of lives in the end. It'll be week 45 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled, Why the Most Mundane Life is Sometimes the Most Passionate Life. Until then, remember, you are lovable. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. Cause you